You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. Well, we praise God for uh, those families in our church who have responded to uh, the need in our area for foster families, and I know that that's not something that everyone in our church can do, and yet here's a great way that all, everyone in our church can be a part of uh, what God is doing and bringing these children uh, into loving families and into a loving church family where they will know the love of Christ. And so if that's something you're interested in doing, uh, you saw the information about the lunch that's coming up in just a few weeks, and we certainly would love for you to be a part of us growing uh, our outreach in this way. And God is definitely uh, using our church in some significant ways. And uh, one of those ways is how our outreach uh, to the community and the nations is growing. As mentioned earlier, the Hamiltons, uh, who we've been partnering with, will uh, be here uh, for a lunch today, sharing more about how uh, God is using uh, them and how we can be a part of what uh, they are doing. Uh, in addition to that, uh, next weekend is the Mission of Hope meal packing event on the Emerald Coast. Our church is a sponsor of this and is very engaged in this. And so there's information about that in your bulletin as well. And then in about a month, we will have the opportunity to hear from pastor and church planter Alex Chapman, who is going to be uh, planting Pillar Church in Crestview, a church that we have committed uh, to support. And so uh, that Sunday, you'll have the opportunity to hear more about how you might be able to be a part of what God is doing there. And more information will be coming about that in the next few weeks. And as we think about all these things that we are doing missions-wise, and that's just scratching the surface, we, we need to realize that the mission isn't just uh, elsewhere, uh, it's right here. And so, uh, in just a little over a week, school starts back in our community. Students, you can moan if you want to do that right now. And teachers, you're welcome to do that as well. But um, school starts back in a little over a week, and it is this great reminder that God has placed us whether it be a school, whether it be a workplace, a neighborhood, in places where we have the opportunity to live on mission for Christ. Today, as we conclude uh, our time in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, and looking at those verses through the lens of our discipleship essentials, we are talking about the last essential of reach. And so today, we'll kind of expound upon the implications of these verses for that. We're also going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, Matthew chapter 28, and we'll conclude with Romans chapter 10. I'm going to start with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, which again, we've been looking at for five weeks, and it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This statement flows from the great doctrinal understandings of who God is and what the will of God is for us that is articulated by the Apostle Paul in chapters one through three. And this statement has great implications for the work of the church. We have examined over the last several weeks four things that this verse says about what God's will is and what God wills to do through us. The first thing is that God's ability to make things happen for us far surpasses our ability to ask for or understand those things. 
The second is that God works for his glory through us. The third is that God works for his glory through us in the church, which is in Christ. And the last is that every generation has the responsibility to pass down the truth that transcends generations to the next generation. So as we think about those four things, we need to think about the responsibility, the call, the essential of reaching people. Now, if you've grown up in specifically a Baptist church, but just about any Protestant evangelical church, you have heard throughout your life about the call to evangelize, the call to share the gospel, the call to witness, however it is articulated. And you often hear about different motivations for doing this. And I think that those motivations, while they're not altogether bad, fall short of the ultimate motivation that we should have for being people who reach people with the gospel. And if we're honest, we know that there are objections to those motivations. A common motivation is that if we reach people, it will grow the church. And the church will certainly grow if we are people who are reaching out and bringing people in. But an objection that has been verbalized about this is if we grow the church, that will bring more people and more problems. And we struggle as it is to take care of our current problems. We can't take care of our own the way that we should or the way that Jesus has called us to, so why would we bring more people into that? And, and I've heard people in this church verbalize that, and I've heard other people maybe think that out loud in a way, and certainly, if you are not aware, that might be something you think about. And so that motivation can really, and, and there's some truth to that, can really fall short. Another motivation might be brokenness. And so the pastor, the preacher, or whoever tells, tells you about the brokenness in this world, and certainly you could turn on the news or open, uh, start scrolling on social media, and you could see that there is brokenness in this world. But then when you begin to talk to people around you, they actually seem fine. And so we actually begin to think, if I then present that they're going to hell, I'm actually introducing drama into their life when there really isn't any drama. I'm introducing tension in their life when there isn't any tension and our relationship is good. And so we're really apprehensive to share the gospel because their life seems fine. Their family seems fine. Everything seems fine. Or maybe the motivation would be people are going to go to hell. And so you need to share the gospel with them because if they don't, they're going to go to hell. And they don't deserve to go to hell. And then you meet them and you're like, actually, they kind of do deserve to go to hell. <laughs> and, and theologically, that is accurate. They do. We do. And so these thoughts have been articulated by some, verbalized by some, and have certainly crossed our minds. And subconsciously, I think they affect us because there is a lack of evangelism that exists within the church. The motivation, though, for reaching people with the gospel is worship of God. It's our worship of God. And when we see who God is and we see the glory he deserves, we realize that he deserves others to bring him glory. And so we want everyone to do what they were created to do and that is worship God. And when we worship God, we begin to gain his heart. And he gives us heart 
for those who don't deserve heaven, just like we didn't deserve heaven. That's why the psalmist can cry out in Psalm 96, verse three, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is the cry of the Christian. I invite with you, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is kind of in the middle of the Old Testament and chapter six is in the middle of chapter five and chapter seven. And so in Isaiah chapter six, there is this incredible account I want us to look at. This account is personal in a deep way to me. I truly believe at 14 years old, February 27th, 1997, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I did not grow up in a Christian home. We did not go to church. I was going to a youth outreach. I heard the gospel presented that night, and that night in my bed, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and committed to live my life for him. I believe it. There was a conviction. There was a conversation that I had not had before with God. But because of my own sin, because of my lack of discipleship, I I struggled with what it meant to be a Christian. And even though I felt a call on my life, I kind of ran from it. And then a few years later, when I was living in Jacksonville, I was uh, working, God got a hold of me, 21 years old, through something someone said. And that night in my apartment in Jacksonville, I opened up to the book of Isaiah. I'm not sure that I knew Isaiah existed before that night. And I started reading and I got to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, verse one says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Uzziah was a long-standing king who led Israel through a good time with great stability. At the time that he died, the Assyrians were rising in power and becoming strong. And there was a great deal of uncertainty for Israel and other nations because of the power of the Assyrians. And Isaiah says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Uzziah died. All rulers and powers die. God does not. God's, Isaiah sees God in this moment of uncertainty, and he sees that the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, I do not believe that Isaiah was physically seeing this. I believe this is a vision. To have truly seen this would have been a departure from Hebrew understanding of who God was, because no one sees him, and certainly would have been noted here in the text. And what Isaiah sees in this vision is he sees the glory of God filling the temple. He's having a vision of the glory of God. He sees these seraphim. No one knows for certain what they are. The word seraphim comes from the root word seraph, which means burning. So they likely appear to be constantly inflamed. They never appear again in the Bible, at least not under the Hebrew word seraphim. And given the grandeur of the scene and the power of the angelic host, do not think of 
chubby winged babies fluttering around the Lord's throne. According to verse 4, when one of them speaks, the foundations of the temple shake. There are no puny or silly creatures in heaven, only magnificent ones. And these magnificent creatures have six wings, and with two they cover their face because they cannot look at the holiness of the Lord, as magnificent as they may be. And with two they cover their feet because they are standing on holy ground. And the last two they fly, the function is the least important here, and they call out, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not only is the temple full of the glory of God, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. I don't know what your religion is, but God is not contained to a physical place. His glory is beyond all we can see and understand. And I pray that you feel, that you know, and that you see the glory of God. And that night in my room, I felt it. And then I felt what Isaiah says in verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, woe is me. Not because he sees the consequences of his sin. Not because a family member or friend has guilted him. Not because he wants his life to be a certain way. These things certainly can get our attention, but they are not what creates that woe moment. Isaiah says what creates that woe moment. He says, for my eyes have seen the king. And in that woe moment, it shows us that we are lost. He says, I am lost because we realize the holiness of God and our separation from the holiness of God. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. It's this recognition that, that at the root of our sin problem is the realization that there is a holy God who we have separated ourselves from because of our sin. When people talk about their sin, they often begin to talk about the fact that they're scared of the consequences that might be coming their way. They might be taught, they often talk about the opinions of others and what they might think about their sin. Or they might talk about, you know, the fear of missing out because of their sin. But what we must be confronted with is that God is holy. For my eyes have seen the king. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The answer is not in this world. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I hope that you feel this today. The weight of your sin. The separation between the holiness of God and you. And then I hope and pray that you also feel what takes place next. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The coal touching the lips represented purification. And the guilt that Isaiah felt that he knew is taken away. And his sin is atoned for. And Isaiah did not do anything except realize his need for it. God atoned for his sins. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the good news of God's mercy for us. And I hope and pray you feel that today. Before the Christian, for the believer, it does not stop there. Verse eight, Isaiah says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. God either refers to himself in the plural or is including his angels, but God has this clear mission in mind. God has a mission in mind. You can see it at the beginning of creation and you can see it fulfilled at the end of the book of Revelation. God has a mission to bring people to see and know him and share in his glory for all of eternity. Salvation is being invited into that and then in God's grace, God invites us to be a part of that mission. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is great grace. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He doesn't say, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do when I get there? Where am I supposed to go? Middle schoolers, who's gonna be there? He says, look no further, God. You got a mission? You, God, want somebody to be sent? Here I am. Send me. And this will be the call that Paul gives the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, when he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Our response to the glory and mercy of God is a change in how we view ourselves and the purpose for which we live. 
when we have seen the glory of God and we have seen the mercy of God for us, it changes us. Our response is a change in how we view ourselves and the purpose for which we live. And it leads clearly in scripture to being on mission for him. One of our values as a church is that we are not a church that does missions, we are on mission. The programs that we have are a result of the people that we are. We are people who believe God and trust God and therefore join him on mission. That's the call on every believer's life. And yet, what we see in the church is a lack of this. An article published by Lifeway Research not too long ago in a survey of congregation members, less than half of those congregation members had shared the gospel with someone in the previous year. So less than half of the people in this room right now, according to this survey, have had a gospel conversation with someone. And you might say, well, people don't know how to share their faith or whatever it may be. Now, that survey revealed that only 27% of church members had prayed for an opportunity in the last year. Understand what this means. It means that we believe that there is a heaven and a hell. That we believe that God deserves our infinite glory. And that the people we see around us who aren't living for him are not giving him the praise he deserves and are headed to hell and we're not even praying that God would help us. That's not an equipping issue. That's a heart issue. That's a worship issue. And so what do we do? What we believe, we humble ourselves. And like Isaiah, we say, here am I. Send me. And if you think that this is just unique to Isaiah, I'd invite you to look at the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. Some of the last words of Jesus on earth. He says this, or the scripture says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we think about the Great Commission, I think about Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And God's ability to make things happen for us far surpassing our ability to ask for or understand those things. I think about God's desire to work for his glory through us. How God works for his glory through us in the church, which is in Christ. How he's bringing the church together to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who he's created them to be. And how every generation has the responsibility to pass down the truth that transcends generations to the next generation. 
So as we think about the Great Commission and we think about the power that is at work within us according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, then we must be people who are on mission for God because he deserves it, because it's where our hearts are. And so what I would say is that everything that we do must be done with anticipation of evangelism. Everything that we do must be done with this reality that at any moment may come the opportunity to speak the words of eternal life into someone. If you've ever played sports, I'll use the sport basketball for example, pretty much everything you do revolves around that moment when you might get that ball. And so all the practice at home leading up to tryouts, if you make the team, the practices that you have, the extra practice that you do on your own, even if you're sitting on the bench, you're ready for that moment when the coach might put you in on the court and when you get on the court, everything you're doing is setting up for that moment when you might get that ball. And as Christians, we must understand that our life is to be lived in this way, that we are the people who God has called to bring the gospel, the mission, to live sent for him. Everything must be done with anticipation of evangelism. So we must know how to share the gospel and we must be ready. Now, sometimes conversations with people are ongoing. In fact, often. But what I would encourage you is that even if you're gonna continue to have to meet with people and spend time with them, that you are getting the gospel across because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so, you can memorize it in another way, but I've memorized the gospel using the three circles method of evangelism. That I'm looking for opportunities with people to essentially point to the reality that, hey, God's design is that they know them, that they know him and that they walk with him. And they've sinned and I've sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why there's brokenness. Yes, that's why in a big picture view, there's brokenness in the world. There's wars, there's murder, there's greed. But it's also why there's brokenness in your life. Sometimes that brokenness is very obvious. Sometimes we can hide it pretty well. But there's brokenness in all of our lives. The gospel is the good news that God didn't just send an angel with coal to touch our lips. God sent Jesus Christ to the cross to atone for our sins. And that we can be made righteous. The separation between us and God and his design can be restored if we would repent and believe in the gospel. If we place our hope not in ourselves and what we can do or religion or anything else for that matter, but in Jesus Christ. And then Christianity isn't earning that. It's just a response to that. And so it's the recovery and pursuit of God's design in our life. This is the good news, and it saves. And we need to be the people as Christians who are ready for those moments to share that. A a word that church people use a lot about what they want to see happen in the church and really in the nation is revival. Revival happens when we see God's glory Revival takes place, if you look through the Old Testament, the New Testament, when we see God and we see his glory. And I'm telling you that to experience and see the glory of God really is simple. 
What God has called us to do is just to respond to him. And the more we respond to him, the more we see his glory. If we will be the people who live on mission for him, whom shall I send? Here am I, send me. We get to see restoration. We get to see repentance. We get to see the unspeakable joy of forgiveness. We did an evangelism class a few years ago here, led by Steve Harker, who's moved down to South Florida. And I remember him saying, a lot of people talk about wanting to see miracles. If you want to see miracles, start sharing the gospel. And you will see the power of God on display in people's lives. And I would add to that, because the Great Commission says, teaching that observe all that I've commanded you, study the word of God together. Because the word changes and transforms people. Share the gospel, study the word of God together, and watch what God does. So why are we not doing that? Well, Soren Kierkegaard said that we are like people who ride our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God. But above us, on either side of the carriage seat, burns a gas lantern. As long as our head is surrounded by this artificial light, the sky overhead is empty of glory. But if some gracious wind of the Spirit blows out our earthly lights, then in our darkness, God's heavens are filled with the stars. The question is, will we ride out to see the glory of God or will we be content with the light that meagerly compares to his glory? Will you live for the glory of God or are you distracted by meager things competing for your affection, your career, the lifestyle you want? your family, your church, all things that are good if submitted to God, but things that we can easily allow to be the light in which we behold. And someday, God will blow out every light competing for his glory, and he will make his holiness known. On that day, Football stadiums will be empty. The Dow Jones will be obsolete. Interest rates will not matter. Instagram and Facebook will be shut down. Presidents and kings and celebrities will take a knee. And the religious hypocrites will realize that they have received their reward in full. And for all of us who have placed our hope in God we will experience the treasures of heaven beyond all understanding. This is our future. This is what we are called to. And Isaiah shows us there is no need to wait to experience the glory of God. We have been invited to live for the glory of God. Paul will encourage the church, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. The problem is never the culture. It's the people of God. The problem is the people of God unwilling to be caught up and captivated by the glory of God and therefore to live for God. That's what's modeled for us in the Bible. That's what ta is taught for us in the Bible. 
The problem is will the people of God be the people he's called us to be? But the solution is also the people of God. And so today, I hope we believe and live Ephesians 3.20, verse 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. God is able to do more than we even understand he could do for his glory through us. Students, youth group, whatever, whatever, whatever we call them now, Alec. Listen, God can take you and cause you not to be students, they're caught up in finding your worth in this world and that are conformed to the patterns of this world. But if you together will live your lives for the great purpose which God has called you to, it will not just be a spark in this church, it will be a flame that catches fire in this church. And often revival begins with teenagers. You Christians do not have a junior version of the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. And I'm encouraging you to be zealous about God and this church will wrap around you and even follow you in some examples of that. We have some college age, a growing number of college age students in our church. I urge you to not be caught up in trying to live your life in a way that just fits the mold apart from the glory of God. Perhaps you could use your summers, perhaps you could use a year to go and live overseas or to go and help a church plant. Perhaps you realize that you're in a campus, in a place where people are questioning everything about reality. In college age is when the highest number of people question their faith and the highest number of people are receptive to the faith. And God has placed you there. Do not let that short window of your life pass without realizing the unique opportunity that God has given you. Young adults, as you're getting started out in life, I know that you feel like you are busy. I promise you, as an almost 41-year-old, you don't know what busy fully means yet. <laughs> I love you. I don't mean that to chide you because I just mean that to tell you you have such flexibility. Use that flexibility for the glory of Jesus Christ. Have people in your home. Go to people's home. Go out to dinner with people. Spend time doing recreation things with the aim of Jesus Christ. Young families who have preschoolers, I know you feel like you're drowning, but I assure you that you will never have the opportunity that you have then at school or on the playground or wherever it may be to naturally strike up conversations with people. Do not allow the lie that you are busy and burdened by your children. Do not neglect them. You be a priority of disciple making in them, but also realize that it's a season where you can do both and. As you begin to hit middle-aged, I think that's me, as you begin to hit middle-aged, 
realize that you are, at that point, probably smart enough to know how dumb you are. And begin to really be, be focused on reaching the next generation, your teenage kids, your becoming adult kids, equipping them, but also helping other people who are your age, realizing their life isn't what it meant to be. Speak into that. Speak life into that. As you enter into empty nester stage, do not be caught up in the patterns of this world, but use the freedom you have for the glory of Jesus Christ because there are treasures in heaven that we await. And senior adults, you're retired now, which means you have new tires and new terrain, and may these be the most fruitful years of your life. God is able to do more than we ask or imagine according to the power that has worked within us. It's not because I'm inspiring you. It's not because the church needs to grow. It's not because people deserve it, but it's because God deserves it and you have his heart. Live on mission for him. Let's trust him. Let me close with Romans chapter 10. If you'll turn there with me, I'll give you a moment just because I think there's something about opening the Bible or whether that's hitting the Bible app or whatever. And looking at it yourself. Romans chapter 10, I'm gonna read verse eight through 15, and I think there are two responses here this morning Romans, from Romans 10 and the rest of the Bible. Here, we begin in verse eight after Paul kind of is wrapping up this beautiful articulation of the gospel over several chapters. He says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps this morning, you see the glory of God. You feel the glory of God. And if you truly feel and see the glory of God, you see your sin. Woe is me. I am lost. For my eyes have seen the king. The answer is call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's the invitation to you today. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, verse 14 and 15 is our response. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will they hear if we don't preach the gospel? And Jesus has sent us. You're sent. Proclaim the goodness and the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Father, woe is me. I 
am a man of unclean lips. God, the answer is not in this world. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. The answer is you. And God, as a shadow of what you would do in Christ, you sent the seraphim to touch those unclean lips of Isaiah with coal. God, you have sent Jesus Christ on our behalf to make us righteous. Righteous is our position where we stand with a holy God who we once were separated from and righteousness is our direction. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. May that that be the cry of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.